Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest in our series of retro spoiler specials, the spoiler podcasts designed to make us feel really, really fucking old. And the film making us feel really, really fucking old this time is Pitch Black. That's right, the first and some would say best entry in the Chronicles of Riddick. <laughs> and the film that brought David Toohey and Finn Diesel together and stranded them on some sort of weird desert planet with loads and loads of suns, then unleashed a whole horde of alien beasties after them. The high concepts in this film just keep getting higher and higher and higher, and is 20 years old. Oh my God. I feel old. Do you feel old? Empire's Geek Queen, Helen O'Hara. I feel so old. I thought our brain was supposed to shut down when we get this old. All but the primitive side, the animal side. Mm. Maybe that's why no we're still awake. Still awake. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Oh no! I'm, I have made a huge mistake. I, I like this film. I really like this film. But I have entered the room with two massive pitch black nerds who, in every conversation we've had about this on WhatsApp, have been bombarding me with obscure quotes. Uh, and I expect <laughs> to receive many obscure quotes from a man who puts the dick in Riddick. It's James Dyer. <laughs> How are you? Thank you, Chris. I'm good. This, as I recall, was one of the first screenings I went to when I started at Empire in 2000. Wow. Wow. I hope the anecdotes get better. <laughs> at the UIP screening room on Golden Square. It was very exciting. Really? Okay. Very exciting. That is no longer yes. the UIP screening room. No, anymore. and UIP isn't really a thing anymore. That so. is where I saw the first film uh, in lockdown. My first screening in lockdown was there. I went to see... Beep, and uh, a good time was had by all. Is it still a screening it's room? Still a screening room. Yeah, it's now an independent screening room. It's um, it's mm. a, an editing company, I believe. Use it as I did not know that. Get hired out to people. Um, so yes, it's in Golden Square, folks. If you want to go and wow. see a little bit of Empire history, that's where I first saw Anchorman. <laughs> oh, I'd love to do an Anchorman supporter special. But anyway, Pitch Black. Pitch Black, yes, let's uh, stay focused on the task in hand and talk about this movie, which is 20 years old. Dear sweet Jesus, how has that happened? Uh, but first, before us three giggling idiots get into the movie, let's hear from the man who made it all happen, the movie's writer and director, David Toohey. Uh, I caught up with him, I think, on Squadcast a couple of weeks ago, and we had a good time, a decent time, digging through the wreckage of the past. Do please enjoy. Delighted to be joined on this very special Pitch Black Retro Spoiler special by the film's writer-director David Toohey. How are you, sir? I'm well, um, given everything Ish. that's happening in the world. Yeah, I'm well enough. Excellent, excellent. And, uh, I, you know, I, I imagine you've been doing quite a lot of interviews about Pitch Black over the last few weeks. Are you in a reflective mood? I am generally not in a reflective mood in life because I'm not one to go back and look at my old movies for fear of recapturing the moment that I made, uh, the, the moment and mistakes I made on the set, right? So yeah. if, if I am uh, flipping channels at night and I come across one of the older movies, and I watch for five or ten minutes. It's just, it tends to be sort of a painful experience because my eyes go right to the problems, right to the things that I never fucking fixed. And um, I don't find that an enjoyable experience. Now, time does dull the pain. So much so that when I had to sit down and watch Pitch Black again after quite a while from front to end because we were uh, coloring, recoloring and retiming this master, this new 4K master, that... Uh, 
I was forced to watch from beginning to end. And at the end of the process, which was actually kind of delightful, at the end of the process, I was able to sit back and say, okay, what did I just see? You know what? I said aloud to the guys in the room. I said, you know what? That's a pretty good movie, which is pretty high praise for me because I'm pretty <laughs> self-governing. I'm pretty self-critical. Yeah. Uh, Looking back at uh, Pitch Black, I just want to set it in context in terms of your career. So this is probably around, what, 1998, 1999, uh, where this first pops up in your life. What were you doing at that point? Can you can you remember? Uh, yeah, it came about probably 1998 uh, and Interscope films at the time approached me because I had had some success with, uh, let's see, The Fugitive at the time, mm -hmm. wrote The Fugitive and uh, co-wrote The Fugitive. And so it was sort of a hot commodity in town as a screenwriter. So they came and they knew I wanted to direct more. I had directed uh, one small science fiction piece with Jeff Daniels called uh, The Grand Tour, Disasters in Time. Mm -hmm. Not my title. My title is The Grand Tour. And then they went off and by the time Showtime bought it and aired it on their network, it became Disasters in Time. I think over here it's called Timescape. And then there's the overseas title, which is Timescape. Mm. So it was all bollocks up and sort of reflects how little power you have <laughs> as a new director to, you know, steer your own ship. Yes. So anyway, I'd done that film and I had done The Arrival, which was another science fiction piece starring, get this, Charlie Sheen as an astrophysicist. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you can buy that, it's a pretty good movie. It's a pretty good movie, and it yeah. has some good. It has some good things in it, and it's sort of anyway. So I'd done those two things, and plus the fugitive, and so Interscope stepped up and said, "All right, we have this script by the Wheat Brothers. We think it's um, it's a good concept that it has promise, but the execution isn't what it should be." If can you take the script over? Can you execute the fuck out of it? And if you do that, and we think you execute the fuck out of it, then we'll let you direct it as well. That's sort of the game people were playing with me at the time. Okay. So uh, I rolled them dice, and we I did like maybe three passes on the script, uh, and then reversed all the expectations that I could hopefully reverse. Meaning, I mean, the premise itself of small crew crash lands on an alien planet and is uh, threatened by hostile life forms. Not particularly novel. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time, the script was called Nightfall, yep. which was also the title of a very well-known and respected uh, as a Geismoff short story of the same name. So um, there were changes to be made. And uh, I said, look, if, if you can have a, that familiar of a premise, then your execution has to be twisted. So if you have a cop figure, square-jawed mm -hmm. American cop who uh, wears a shiny badge, and the expectation is that he's going to be last man standing, he's going to be the guy who gets the girl, he's going to be the guy who leads you out of chaos and, and away from death, then forget it. I'm not doing that. We're gonna, we're gonna he's going to pose as that. But in reality, he's going to be a junkie. He's going to be a coward. He's going to be the guy who wants to kill the girl just to save his own life. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to reverse that. And then this guy that you've got in chains the whole movie, and everyone's been talking about what a badass motherfucker he is. And he's probably he's a serial killer. You can't even talk to this guy. 
then suddenly you realize halfway through the movie, well, he hasn't killed any of us. Yeah. And he could lead us out of this. We don't think it's you, Johns, with a shiny badge. We think it's maybe him that we should yeah. be following, right? Yeah. You go, oh, now we're following a serial killer. That's kind of cool. So I just wanted to twist all that. All, whatever expectation you might have for the execution of this movie, just change it. And that's the approach I took. And that's, that's, that's how we shot it. They're not the only characters who subvert expectations yeah. uh, as well. And, uh, you know, you have Jack uh, as well. You have Fry subverts expectations uh, also. And the film itself, David, I mean, maybe we'll start with the film and then drill down into some of the characters as well. But the film itself does that also. I've, I've watched this film a number of times and it's interesting I always find this interesting that the it has the high concept. Whenever I first heard of Pitch Black, I knew the concept. Basic concept was a group of people go to a planet. It's a desert planet. There's an eclipse. Monsters come out. They can see in the dark. And what's fascinating about the movie is how much you withhold that and how much you, you keep that at arm's length. It's not for a long time that we even know there are creatures in the film. Uh, we, and it's not for a long time we know that they can see in the dark and that it's an eclipse. Can you talk about that sort of slow burn approach? Yeah, I like slow burns in movies. I mean, I also did the same thing with a movie called A Perfect Getaway. Yes. Real slow burn. And again, a film where nobody is what they seem to be. That's right. Even more so. Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorites. Perfect Getaway. You know, yeah. if I had to sit down and watch any of my movies, it'd probably be Perfect Getaway. Just to see, all right, is he cheating here? Is the filmmaker cheating here? You know? <laughs> or is he playing it straight up? Is he playing the ruse straight up? Anyway, um, I like slow burns. I do introduce them in, in Pitch Black and elsewhere. We mentioned Perfect Getaway. But the problem is that you get into the editing room and you start showing it to like the executives mm. and they get antsy. They don't like slow burns. They want you to announce what your film is so the audience isn't confused, that they aren't twiddling their thumbs, blah, blah, blah. And so there's always a, um, a back and forth about how slow that burn should be, how slow or how fast that burn should be. Yeah. But, you know, look, I also like there are times when you want to do the fast burn. That's, that's how The Fugitive starts out. It starts out with a you know, pretty big bang. And, and you're often running probably within, you know, 10, 12 minutes. You're mm -hmm. on the run, boom, for the rest of the movie. Mm. But here, um, I just want to take some time and develop. Look, we have the crash sequence in Pitch Black to shore mm -hmm. things up. Mm -hmm. And we have the mystery of Rick's VO uh, voiceover in the beginning to let you know that this character is not just going to be, it, it may be something special over the course of the movie. And that hopefully keeps the audience engaged, keeps them hooked, keeps them, their expectations uh, where they should be. What was true of A Perfect Getaway is true of uh, Pitch Black as well. It's like there was pressure on me to just get to it. Get to nightfall, buddy, right? Mm. Say, so, well, you can do that, but you're going to sacrifice. You're going to be digging into the character moments early on, which need to pay off in a good, big, gratifying way in the second half of the movie. So if you... If you, cut, if you cut too deep in the first half of the movie, your payoffs aren't going to be as powerful in the second half of the movie. Yeah. So yeah. that's what I kept, kept stressing. And so it is, always, it is always a power struggle, always a give and take in the editing room when you do, when you want to emphasize character. And there were, and there were some people who saw it and said, look, this is, this is like an axe in the face movie. This is genre movie. This is, you've, you know, you've got... Critters killing people. It's like, just get to the critters killing the people. I said, no, I think it can be better than that. I think we can do better. 
give me a chance to do better and don't make me cut the guts out of this thing. <laughs> you have those but conversations. Yeah, but I, I can imagine. But it's it's interesting when you go back to Alien or Aliens, uh, which, you know, are the, uh, in many ways, the ultimate slow burn movies. I mean, I don't think an alien appears on screen in Aliens until an hour in. And uh, an alien is about 30, 40 minutes, uh, I'd say, before the chestburster scene. Easily yeah. 30, 40 minutes. So it's, but it's fascinating because I think in Pitch Black, you almost make people forget that it's going to be a critter movie. Yeah, and uh, because yeah. you suddenly you focus on on Riddick and you focus on Johns and you focus on on Fry. In the shooting script, I, there was a preface page that talked about this very thing about how even though the script talks about these creatures, which we called predators in the script, the preface note for me said something to the effect of "Don't pay attention to the creatures; they're just something that pr- pressurized the characters from outside." So we're, we're interested in what's inside the pressure cooker. We're not interested <laughs> in the pressure cooker itself. Because yes. that pressure will reveal the true nature of these characters. Yes. So Fry, Carolyn Fry, played by Rada Mitchell, she's the one who is posing as the captain, but in fact, she's not the captain. And guess what? She tried to kill them all mm-hmm. while they were in their cryosleep lockers. Mm. So that's going to be revealed under the pressure. John's cowardice is going to be revealed under the pressure of the predators. Uh, the Jack uh, gender switch is revealed. And then Riddick as um, the serial killer who has still some shred of humanity in him. That's mm-hmm. revealed in the pressure cooker that the predators create for us. So I made a note of that fact. I said they aren't going to be seen nearly as much as you may want. They're going to be things of the shadows, mm-hmm. it's really the pressure that they bring to bear on the characters that matters most. And I carried through on that to some degree, but then again, when you're doing a creature movie, there's always <laughs> the temptation. And once they build those 3G, 3D creatures and they start to, then, and Peter Chang at double negative, he starts showing you all of the cool things that they can do, how they can fly, how they can swoop, how they, you know, then you go. So, you give in to that temptation to show them perhaps a little bit more than you had intended. <laughs> Indeed, but that that leads. I mean, it's it's a movie with a very very dark sense of humor uh, as well, David. I have to say, and uh, some of the uh, some of the kills or the reveals of the kills, uh, I can just imagine you chuckling to yourself in the in the edit suite. There's the uh, uh, the way poor Shaza, poor Shaza, poor Shaza gets ripped ripped in half, screaming uh, all the way. Screaming all the way, her top half screaming. I mean, that's uh, yeah. you know, it, it made me chuckle, but uh, but then perhaps I'm I'm there's something wrong with me too. Who knows? <laughs> no, we chuckled, and we said, "Can we do this?" You know, not because it was so gross, but because it was a little so so um, maybe over the top. Can yes. we do this? Can we get away with this? I don't know. Let's see. Let's see it with the critters in there, and maybe. <laughs> yeah, I actually like the off-screen kills sort of better than on-screen kills. You know, mm-hmm. talking about the Paris death. The Paris death is fantastic. The Paris death is is really interesting. Where, where, where did that come from for you? You know, this is this is um, it's an example of of every day can be Christmas in the editing room. Mm. Because we had just it's like how we're going to get rid of this guy, and I'm talking to my brain trust who include including Peter Chang. Uh, you know, one of the deans of uh, of London Visual Effects now. And by the way, Double Negative started with this picture. Double Negative yes. is a huge visual effects organization today, something like, I don't know, 3,000 seats around the world. 
And uh, they started with this show. They started with Pitch Black. It was their first show. Yeah. They came together for that. And then they decided to stay together after Pitch Black. So we've got a long, a long good history with uh, Double Negative. And they may be doing visual effects on the, on the fourth critic. Fantastic. So Fantastic. So Paris, played by uh, Louis Fitzgerald. We were trying to figure it out on the day. And we just know that uh, we wanted to hold back on seeing creatures around him. We wanted a burst of light, and then we'd see the creatures around him. That was the concept. And Lewis was facile enough to come in with this fire-breathing gag, right? Because he's <laughs> like, not only an actor, he's like a semi-circus performer as well. He had all these tricks. A master <laughs> of props. Uh, and a fun, guy to, a fun guy to hang with. He mm-hmm. came in with a fire-breathing gag. So we set it up once earlier once or twice earlier. And then we give him this line. He knew he was going to die. Fuck, I always wanted to die in Paris. I didn't want to die in some crapshit world like this. And then just to see what was around him, he, he breathed the fire for real on set. That's real. It's not visual effects. Amazing. And so, so that's all we shot on the set, right? Just against black, one guy spitting fire. That's all we had and that's all we knew. We said, okay, Let's hope the best for this shot. And then, you know, like eight weeks later, 10 weeks later, the first rough of that shot shows up. Uh-huh. And I remember watching it with the editor on, I think the, the, the uh, I guess it was film we were uh, finishing on, shooting and finishing on. Mm-hmm. We showed it on the flatbed monitor. And it's like, everybody goes, wow, wow. It's just boof, a burst. <laughs> you, you see him just surrounded by creatures and then they're gone. Yes. And it's so shocking. It's so fast and so shocking. It's like, wow, what was that? Wow, play it again, play it again, play it again. And you know you really had something. And that's what that's the tag shot for that Universal used when they released the film. Yes. And they just played it and played it and played it for all the trailers. Just played that at the end. <laughs> you got them hooked. <laughs> we're we're money. So yeah, it went from a nothing shot to very much a something shot. And that's sometimes happens. And sometimes they go the other way too. Visual oh, really? things. Yeah, it's like, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be fantastic, you know. And then it's like, why t- isn't this shot working? Why are we fighting this shot every step of the way? But it's, it's interesting that you say that, uh, you know, it was every, every day was Christmas in the, in the editing suite. And in a weird way, you found Riddick in the editing suite, didn't you? Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. you, you knew that it was a, this was a potent character. You knew that Finn was knocking it out in the park. But the impression I get is that he assumed a greater importance in post. Uh, that, that impression is correct. Yeah. We'd always thought of it as a three-hander with... Um, uh, the Carolyn Fry part, the, Bo- uh, the the Johns part, and the Riddick part. And we shot it that way. And the first cut of the edit was that way. And then we started test screening. And the, uh, the audience started digging their Riddick. And for some reason, even though they shouldn't have known, they somehow knew already who Vin was. <laughs> and this is before Private Ryan came out, I think. Okay. I think. Private Ryan was in 98, so. All right. There might have been a little residual Finn I love think, right. still. Have, all right, there may have been. Yeah. But, you know, Finn, Finn wasn't necessarily the star of uh, Saving Ryan. <laughs> he oh, takes true. the first bullet. He wasn't around that long. <laughs> true. So it's like, but they already, they were starting to understand who Vin was and understand his presence and persona. Mm-hmm. He, while we were finishing the film and testing the film. 
And there was also some confusion for us in the beginning because we'd always started with Carolyn Fry just coming out of her locker, landing on the floor, saying, where are we? And for the next 90 seconds or two minutes, you don't realize that you're on a spaceship until she opens up the viewport and sees that the ship is basically on fire, that they are in reentry. Mm, okay. So there's some confusion there we had to clean, uh, clean up as well. So we created the comet shot, which opens the movie to, set, mm-hmm. to let the audience know, because audiences, they like to be have the rug pulled out from under them in a delightful way, in a way that makes sense, but they don't like to be confused. It's like, where am I? So with that prior opening, without the space shot, with uh, and with just starting with Carolyn Fry, Rodda Mitchell just lurching out of her cryosleep, it's like, where are we? Are, are we in a factory somewhere? And when you hear that in the focus group, you're like, oh, fuck, okay, I got to go back and do something <laughs> like that. Because no, we aren't in a factory. We're in a spaceship. So start with a space shot. And then that gave us a little time to lay in a voiceover and pick up Riddick. And, mm. so, uh, and so that voiceover where he talks about sort of a classic line now about how, you know, they say most of your brain shuts down in cryosleep. Mm-hmm. Everything mm-hmm. but the animal side, the primitive side. No wonder I'm still awake. Right? Well, that tells <laughs> yeah. you a lot about Riddick right there, right? Yeah. It's, it's, actually, it's actually one of my um, favorite lines. So that's uh, so we front loaded Riddick that way, and it gave us a little clarity, and it said, "Stand by for this character. He won't talk for again for quite a while, but stand by for this character. Right? He is important." So, um, so we started emphasizing uh, the Riddick character a little bit more. Now, in part because the badass motherfucker who's in chains and mouth bit, and he's in uh, like some kind of hood in the beginning. As mystery to him, so it's like you're already just as written. You are you are you want to engage with this character more than you're allowed to do. So there's yeah. the eye goes there, but then Vin looking like he do, like he looks, sounding like he sounds. It's like he lay, he adds a layer to all that, a good layer yes. to all that. So between um, the character as conceived in the script and between Vin's execution of the character. It's like people wanted, people love them, they're Riddick. And so we started to, we listened, we listened to the focus groups. As much as I hate focus groups and, and testing films, you can learn from them. You can learn from that process. <laughs> and that's, that's a case of learning from it and adjusting accordingly. And as a result, a franchise was launched. So that's not, that's not bad for a focus group. That's okay. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There's <laughs> probably one hand in the focus group. Said, you know, I really like that red character. Or they actually go through in the focus groups and they, they say, okay, which character do you like most? Show of hands. Yeah. And there's 20 yeah. people. And, you know, when it came to Riddick, they all go up. So that, <laughs> that, that tells you what you should be doing. It's a question of, will you listen? <laughs> and do you have the footage to do anything about it? Well, that's the thing. I mean, that's what I wanted to ask you. I mean, did, because you can get Finn in, obviously, to, to loop lines and, and do, uh, do a voiceover at the beginning. But um, did anything, did you go back and reshoot anything? Were you softening some of Riddick's edges uh, towards the end? Or was it all uh, scripted? No, we, we reshot nothing. Just didn't have the money. And mm. uh, actually, the studio that, that had financed us was not universal, but it was Polygram. And Polygram mm. at the time had collapsed uh, while we were filming. So we were down in Australia thinking, hmm, huh, does that, 
does anybody know we're down here? <laughs> is the money going to keep coming? And you go to the line producer and they goes, no, the money's, the money's there. The money's in the bank. So, okay. So we should just keep shooting, right? Yeah, just keep shooting and, and we'll, we'll figure out what happens later on. So there's a lot of talk about the movie going straight to video, which was, oh you know, Death Incarnate at the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then Universal stepped in and they were, they had a deal with Polygram to cherry pick like two movies. And one was a Hugh Grant rom-com. And the other one that they plucked out of the Polygram library was Pitch Black because the market, marketeers saw it and they go, you know what? We can do something with this. <laughs> we can do something with this. <laughs> and so they released it and they released it and they saved us from, you know, a non-franchise future. <laughs> Indeed. But it, yeah. it's interesting that you, you say that, that, that everything was as scripted and uh, the approach to and treatment of Riddick in the film is fascinating because all the way through the film, Riddick tells us this himself. I am, you know, I am a bad guy. I have killed people. I am an escaped convict. I will yeah. fuck you up if I if I'm given the chance. I will leave. He says, yeah. He says, I will leave you here. I'll leave. I'll, yeah. leave, I'll strand you on this planet. I have no trouble with that. <laughs> and John's is absolutely every every almost every utterance John's makes is this guy is dangerous. You know, keep an eye on on him. Right. And yet, as you point out, Riddick doesn't actually actually kill anyone in the film. He doesn't even kill Johns, which I think is is fascinating. Can you, can you talk about that approach? I don't recall the exact conversations, if only because it was 20 years ago, but mm -hmm. I, I can speculate that there were conversations about, wait a second, shouldn't this guy kill somebody? Sure. <laughs> if he is what he says he is, shouldn't he be doing, shouldn't he just doing something really heinous to somebody? John, I said, I know I sort of like the irony of, of not, this is a speculative conversation I'm having. Of course. Based on, if not this film, many films. And just Frank being Mincy in the industry. Memories. Just knowing yeah, the course. industry like I do. I'm <laughs> sure there was pressure on me to have uh, him conduct some sort of heinous kill. And I'm, I'm guessing I, I would have said, I think it's just a little more elegant if Riddick beats him in a fight, Johns, and then, you know, feeds him to the wolves. Mm. Right? Let's the wolves finish off the job. Mm. It's like, I've done here. I'm one. I've won. You're a coward. You're cut. Mm. You know, yeah. go off and die somewhere. But you're right; he doesn't kill anybody in the movie, right? No, yeah, well, he obviously kills some of the um, some of the creatures, the the predators or the the bio raptors, as I discovered they were called on <laughs> when I went on the internet earlier. On. <laughs> I, I uh, have never called them bio raptors, nor does the script, so I don't know where well, they came from. Like, where does that come from? Like, who decides that these things are called bio raptors? Yeah. Someone has at some point along the way, and it's it stuck. Um, but let's not let's not call them that. Yeah, but just, um, uh, the script they're just called predators with a small p. Okay. Just a generic yeah. thing, and we'll figure out what they look like later on. But there are examples all the way through the script of of Riddick being sinister. There's the there's the moment. I think it's a really weird moment where um, Johns and Fry are having the conversation outside the skeleton of the giant creature, and Riddick's inside the creature, and he snips off a little lock of yeah. of Fry's hair. So you little you get little hints of what a creep this guy can be if mm -hmm. he was left unfettered. Now, did you like that moment personally where he snips her hair? I've always found it unsettling, deeply unsettling. Yeah. And I think that's crucial, especially at this point when we, as an audience, our sympathies are still with Jaunt. Yeah, I think it was Vin's idea to, to cut the hair. And at the day, I remember having a conversation with the producers, on-set producers, about like, is this over the top? Is this too much? Is this? And then I'll, I'll go for cutting the hair, but when he smells the hair, you know, you, gotta, mm. you get into back and forths like that. Mm. But, um, you know, we threw it in. 
It is unsettling. <laughs> the audience is kind of dug it, seemingly. Mm-hmm. So we stuck with it. In that case, you know, Vincent instinct was right. You also have, um, there's a shot that makes me laugh every single time, David, which is just after the, the poor, the poor Schmo has turned up, banged, banged in the door of the ship and immediately been killed. And then you, uh, he falls out of frame and you reveal Riddick basically just having the time of his life under a parasol. Yeah. On yeah. Top of the ship. And um, another case of where Vin helped me stage it correctly. Uh, because. I was always going to crash Zoom past that, we called him, I don't know, something like unfortunate stranger or something like that. But <laughs> he Dead shot, meat. he's just another survivor that they shoot in the face because they think it's Riddick. He falls away. We crash Zoom onto Riddick and he's sitting under the umbrella atop the crash ship. This was the, uh, the Paris's uh, umbrella and he's drinking Paris's booze. So originally uh, on the day, I said, so I've got a nice like, thing for you to hide behind on the ground here, Vin. It's like a giant spool or something like that. So right. I'm going to crash Zoom and I'm going to find you. And even as I said it, I knew there was something wrong with the idea. <laughs> I'm going to find you sort of hiding behind the spool and you can poke your head out a little bit, right? <laughs> and then sort of goes, huh, I kind of feel like I'd be up there under the umbrella, <laughs> you know, maybe drinking somebody's booze. And I go, oh, boy, that might be a little, well, let's try it. Let's try it again, you know? <laughs> and fucking, yeah, because can you imagine crashing me onto somebody who's peeking around a, a little foreign object? Yeah, of course. Of it's course. Like, it, no. That's not Riddick. That, that's like a cowardly pose. And it's like, yeah. let's have him hide in broad daylight and just, you know, loving it. Love it. Riddick, Riddick, he's a showman. That's what he, that's what he wants to do. He at, wants at to. At times. At times. Yeah. So, um, another example of when Vind uh, helps stage things correctly. <laughs> Amazing. Now and, they weren't uh, all they weren't all good ideas, <laughs> but that one that one worked. Um, are you a big, especially back at, uh, with with this script, David? Were you a big backstory guy? Did you because there's there's tantalizing hints about Johns and Riddick and how difficult it has been for Johns to hunt this guy down? And you know, were you filling in the blanks, or were you, or or, or did you just leave them tantalizingly open? Uh, in general, I'm not a big backstory guy. I'm thinking that if you have enough front story, you don't need backstory. <laughs> That's generally my approach to things. However, you know, things change and TV is changing all that because when you have, you know, 10 episodes to, f- to fill a season now, you have to go into characters' backstories and pull out secrets from their backstories to make television work. But in a feature film, less so. Uh, but there is, between Johns and Riddick, there is... Uh, you know, years of bad blood. And in the director's cut of Pitch Black, there's a scene where Johns explains to Fry that Riddick tr- uh, shipped him in the back, tried to kill him, missed the spine by a nano inch. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he carries that scar with him and he makes Fry feel that scar on the back of him. He says, I carry that scar with me all the time. I know how fucking dangerous he is. And, uh, and, that's that's why I can't ever let this guy go. So um, that is their personal their personal backstory, and that's I think as much as you need to to motivate what you need to motivate in the course mm-hmm. of you know mm-hmm. a two hour movie. And uh, I mean Fry's backstory happens on screen. Fry's backstory yeah. is that she's willing to jettison all those lives to save herself. She tried to, she failed. She carries that guilt with her. 
So she is a compromised character, and ultimately she needs to pay the price for that. So that mm-hmm. when she, her dying at the end, as tragic as it seems in the moment, is somehow correct and justified and feels balanced, right? Mm. It is her own personal tone. Uh, so, so her backstory plays out on camera. So that's, that's the, actually sort of the way I like backstory. Backstory plays out in front of you. Yeah. If, if that's not contradiction of terms. No, I, I was, I was going to ask about that. I mean, did, did, did Fry, was that always the case with Fry? Was she always going to pay that price? She absolutely turns a 180 completely by the end of it. She's assumed the captaincy. She rejects right. it all the way through the film. Yeah. You know, I'm not your fucking captain. And by the end, she's decided I will die for these people. But it's interesting that she dies whilst saving Riddick. Yeah. Yeah. Again, sort of a reversal of expectations. Yeah. Um, it was always that way. And I knew that was the ending I was gunning for all, all along. It's nice to know what your ending is usually mm. when you're writing the script. <laughs> it's not all it's not imperative and it doesn't it's not always there but it is helpful to know what your final scene will be yeah it's still a, it's still a tremendous moment you know there's there's something about the look on rada's face yeah. there's a weird beat almost of relief slash happiness that's what i read into it anyway before she's pulled away by the creature is Re- you know, yeah. maybe maybe it's just like release yeah, I'm released. I'll be released from all this guilt and all this shame. And there's there's a there's a theme that runs all the way through the film. Actually, I wanted to to get you to to expand on that. Obviously, there's guilt, uh, there's redemption, but there's an interesting thread about faith as well. You know, I don't think it's an. I I know that at one point there was a, an idea of of Chrislam being, you mm. know, a, a, a religion that was that was very much up front and center. But what you have now, you look back at this movie, it's a movie that's twenty years old, uh, obviously made slightly outside the Hollywood system. But some of its major characters are are Muslim, which is really really interesting. You have this idea of faith running through the film with uh, you know Keith David's character. There's this 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 sort of push and pull between him and Riddick, you know, which even down the line, which I, had to, I love this line. I absolutely believe in God, and I absolutely hate the fucker. Yeah, let me tell you that line causes a stir when we were testing it and when we previewed it. I remember it's like, yeah, oh uh, no, you got me all wrong, holy man. I absolutely believe in God, and I absolutely hate the fucker. It's like. Oh, you could feel the stir in the audience. It's like, oh, you can't talk like that. <laughs> oh, you know, I thought this was a fun movie. Now, fuck, what are you doing now? Now we have a theological debate. Yes, a theological debate <laughs> broke out in the, in the middle of our genre creature movie. Um, yeah, it cre- created quite a stir. And I think Vin was even hesitant about saying it, if, if I recall. But I finally got him to, uh, to deliver it and deliver it right. And... Uh, yeah, it's a moment. It's just one of those moments. Yeah, was that was that a big thing for you? A big a big touchstone, though. This idea of of warring faiths and you know and 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 having characters who were were positive role models who were who were Muslims. More the latter. Uh, I'm not a big uh, uh, faith based guy, mm-hmm. but I do like to understand religion and why people are are drawn to it, and sometimes drawn to its excesses. Yeah, originally in the original script, they were Chrislams, which was a um, uh, the thinking 
followed the thinking that maybe those two great religions of the world had come together and um, joined forces, stopped warring and joined their force, joined forces. Mm. Somehow that got set aside and we stuck with Muslims on pilgrimage to not, <clears throat> they were on a hajj, not to the New Mecca, uh, Mecca on earth, but New Mecca mm. somewhere else because mm. Really, all those, all those faithful out there, if you live, you know, 10 solar systems away, can't be expected to get back to Mecca. So, they established, they found some new space rock, put it inside the sarcophagus, the cloth sarcophagus on some other world. And so, that's why, it's also why when they crash land on the planet, uh, the four, the then four Muslims go out into the desert and they pray. Mm. And they each face a different way because they don't know where they are. They don't know where Mecca is relative to their position in space. So they all take a different direction to cover the bases. At the time, and the three kids that we were working with, Keith David is not a Muslim, but the three kids we were working with are, were, mm -hmm. maybe still are. And, and there was an advisor on the set as well. And they didn't really like that idea. You know, they didn't oh, really? say okay. we should all be facing the same way. I said, yeah, but you don't know which the right way, what the right way is. So let's play it this way. So there was a little pushback on that. Do you think you would get pushback today about the Jack reveal? Uh, I hadn't thought of it. Uh, are you thinking I would? I don't know. It's it's certainly quite quite ballsy. You know, she was uh, she was originally called. She was originally a girl called Audrey. And she didn't have much to do in the movie. She was just sort of a tag-along character that, you know, we were protecting. If I have the right, yeah, she's really Audrey. Mm. And then I said, you know, she doesn't have much to do. She doesn't have much to say. It's like, you know, she, I, okay, she's a runaway. She's a stowaway, runaway. That's it. That's all she has to play. And then late in pre-production, uh, you know, I went to... Um, the creative producers who were who was um, who were Scott Kroof and Tom Engelman at the time, mm -hmm. and I just said, you know, I'm just I don't have much for this character to do. Even when I audition, I feel it. I'm auditioning these gals, and I just don't have. I'm not sure I have enough for them to play, and I'm not sure I, I can give them enough. So we brainstormed for a while and came up with the idea. Well, what if we you know pull sort of a Shakespearean twist, and she is a girl masquerading as a guy. And she's mm -hmm. doing that because knowing that she's traveled alone, knowing that she's going to run uh, some rough people along the way, that's probably better to pose as a boy and sort of inoculate yourself against some, some, some kind of abuse out there as opposed to a girl who might be more vulnerable on such a trip. Mm. And uh, then we said, all right, now, of all the people that we've cast, who if we're going that way, at least she has something better to play. And then there's another reveal down the line, right? All is good. Another secret to expose, good. But then do any of the actors that we have auditions, can, can they pull it off? I mean, can they physically pull it off, right? Mm -hmm. And what would mm -hmm. they have to do? And we found this one gal, Rihanna, who had just like a mane of hair. It went all the way down to the smaller of her back. <laughs> And we said, well, she's the most suited for it, and she's a good actress. And, you know, physically, when we look at her face, we can sort of see 
uh, general neutrality there. So she would be the one, but uh, who wants to be the one to talk to her about <laughs> cutting her hair? Oh, shit. Yeah. So um, so we got the word out. We'll let, we'll let the casting director take care of that. <laughs> and uh, she said, sure, I'll cut my hair. So it was like she went from a glorious head of hair just down to, you know, Riddick nubs. <laughs> yeah. And we're so glad we did it. We're so glad yeah. we did it. So there's you, you got to listen to those feelings as a filmmaker about yeah. something's not right here. Same way that's like when I was staging that shot with Vin, you know, who's going to be hiding behind the giant spool as opposed to on top of the ship under the umbrella. Something's not right here. Something's not right here. So you listen to the voices around you. And when you know something is right, then you try to, then you need to shut those voices out too. You, you said there, you know, it's always good to have extra you know, reveals to keep, you know, disclosing secrets along the way. And, uh, you know, from a storytelling point of view, we, I've mentioned the slow burn of the movie, but there's some really, really interesting ways. The way you parcel information is interesting. We don't get the revelation about Riddick's eyes until easily half an hour into the movie. Um, from a storytelling point of view, uh, you know, can you, can you talk about, uh, talk about that, but talk about dispensing those moments and making sure that there's something interesting happening, some revelation every, almost every five minutes. Yeah, I can talk about it. I don't know if it's going to be interesting. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the short answer is, <clears throat> yeah, I like doing that. I like keeping the revelations going. And by the way, in terms of Riddick's eyes and his explanation for, you know, how he got his eyes in the film, he talks about, you know, I was in this pit of prison. It's dark. Guys sneak up on you. So, uh, you can get your eyes surgically enhanced by some prison doctor there, right? Mm. And you pay him, you give him 20 cigarettes. 20 menthol cools, and he'll do it for that price. So that was the the story that he told uh, young Jack. But that doesn't mean that it's the actual story. <laughs> because, you know, Rick is under no obligation to tell the truth. And in fact, it wasn't. As we move on ahead and as we get into Riddick 4, uh, we understand more what those eyes are all about. Okay. But it's, it, it's interesting. There are moments in the film, and judging from one of your earlier comments about, you know, the studio and having studio notes, and there's there are moments in the in the beginning where there's the storytelling is so quick. There's a remarkable economy of storytelling. For example, Riddick frees himself from his bonds, rips off his mouth guard. It's, next cut, the mouth guard is outside and he's escaped and they're immediately mounting a search party. Uh, was that always the intention or did that come from notes in the studio? Cut the stuff down, cut this down, you know, to it's absolutely moving at a, at a feral lick. Or was that stuff that you wanted to do as a, as a storyteller? Uh, in terms of that one sequence of shots, I'm not sure. But mm -hmm. in terms of those jump ahead moments, those are always welcome. And I'm always looking for them in film because it just keeps things moving. It keeps storytelling ahead of the audience. You really hate for the storytelling to get behind the audience. That's when the audience gets <laughs> bored. They say, yeah. we know this. We know where this is going. And bad things always arise from that. So those jump ahead moments, boom. Mm. He's gone. Johns finds his restraints on the ground. Doesn't know what direction he's, he's, he's headed. Rescue uh, scouting party gets together. Somebody says, well, why aren't we heading in the direction of the dropped restraints? John says, well, if you drop them there, that means he went there, the polar opposite <laughs> way. That's the way we're going to go to look for Riddick, which is a nice byplay. Yeah. So, yeah, I look for those jump ahead moments because you just always want, need to stay ahead of the audience. Uh, you just don't want to fall behind them. I mean, there are some Hitchcockian examples of 
where you do want to put the audience ahead of the uh, of the characters in the movie. But that's when you're going for suspense. Uh, and here we were going for uh, motion forward story momentum. And I, I've got to ask, before I let you go, I've got to ask about you know the line, you're not afraid of the dark, are you? Which has become obviously such an iconic line. Did you... Did you think that? Well, that's a, that's a trailer line. That's going to be in the trailer. <laughs> that's that's yeah. for sure. But but it's it's been overused too. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't even even know if we said it in Pitch Black, did we? You do. Yeah, absolutely. Ben and so Riddick's character says it. But where does he say it? He says it. Uh, I even wrote it down. It's the the line after the uh, eclipse revelation. So they realize that there's an eclipse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. coming. Right. And he, he well says it. placed. Good line for that movie. But then we reprised it in movie uh, two as well. And they reprised it in the trailer as well. Because the executives at the time were, executives at the time were like, that's his superpower. He's in the dark. And I kept saying, you know what? It's like, okay, so every special ops soldier who has night vision goggles is like, is that a superpower? (laughs) <laughs> you know, are, are they on par with Riddick? No, they aren't. It's got to be something other than that. So I don't. I didn't want to emphasize as the movies wore on. I didn't want to emphasize that particular feature as being the thing that defines Riddick. So I was backing away from it. But then the trailer guys dug it out for the second movie, and it's in the trailers for the second movie. And I say, okay, well, that puts us right back in the first movie, and we should be moving forward, not yeah. backwards. <laughs> so it's very so in the fourth movie I imagine as I I've now written it you know there are very few times when we resort to Riddick's uh, night vision POV and we just don't hinge big moments on that anymore yeah. we're just moving on yeah. we got other things to do other things to talk about is this a chicken and egg situation in this movie in terms of Riddick's night vision and the idea that you have a hero or an anti-hero who can see in the dark and you have creatures who can also see in the dark. Do you remember which came first? Was it an idea of we need something to to give Riddick an advantage over these creatures or over over everyone else? Yeah, the, the genesis of that is that uh, the eclipse was uh, bred into the, it uh, was sort of baked in from the beginning. We know we're going to have an eclipse and we know some hostile life forms are going to come out during the eclipse. So, and then I knew I wanted the least likely person on the planet to become their most unlikely savior. Okay, so what is special about this guy that can allow that to happen? I said, okay, well, what if, what if he had the ability to see further in the dark than a normal human being? Okay, that would get them to line up behind him, which is what I want. But then how do I justify that? Well, dark prisons, advantage there, some kind of surgical procedure to play around with, or at least that can be the cover story. Okay, okay, let me go with that and see if it works. And so uh, that was the genesis of it, and that's how it plays out. Uh, It is still, some people will still point to it as, you know, highly coincidental. Um, But it does allow for a greater good. The greater good is that, for the first time in his life, he can lead others away from death rather than toward death. 
We're back to the faith thing again, David. We're back to <laughs> he's uh, leading yeah. his people. <laughs> he's leading his people out of the promised land. Um, yeah. And of course, Riddick wasn't in the Nightfall script. I understand he was. It was a completely different character. It was a, it was a it was a woman. If I remember correctly, there was a woman who was um, uh, some sort of convict. I don't know that she was a killer. I don't know that she was a serial killer. And she certainly wasn't Riddick. But there was some sort of convict aboard. Some sort okay. of you know Joker character. That uh, uh, like Joker in the deck, just so it was sort of X factor, right? Yes, absolutely. Not not the Joker. And beyond that, that I be. don't remember much more. Well, of course, you know Riddick is now with us, and as you mentioned, you've you've just finished writing the fourth Riddick. Uh, it's been a while now since since we last saw him. So, what can you say about about Riddick Four? I can say that it's um, it'll be independent. Independently made, though I suspect that Universal will release it again because that's how we made the uh, third film. Mm-hmm. So you're asking the studio to sort of do what they do best, which is release the movie and release it worldwide. We'll see if that happens. We'll know in the next couple of weeks whether Universal is going to do that or not. But it's really um, an independent feature. Vince Company controls the rights now, and then Universal has a first look. Uh, option on it. Uh, but in terms of the story, we have we start with a Riddick who is a guy searching for some connection to the universe, right? He's, he has all these... He bemoans all the ghosts that he's left behind in his wake, right? And he finds himself very alone. Mm-hmm. And searching for some connections to the universe. And he finally does return to his home world of Furia, a place that he barely remembers and one he fears might be a dead world ravaged by necromongers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he finds Furians there and they're fighting for their existence against a new enemy. And some of these Furians are more like Riddick than he could have ever imagined. So it is a return to um, to his um, home world, to his birth world, and all the discoveries that that might entail. So that's what we're doing for Riddick Four. So, in in terms of scope and scale, is it is it closer to Pitch Black or or Riddick or uh, you know because it's more independently made? I I guess can you can you aim for the scope of the Chronicles of Riddick? Probably not. That okay. was. Uh, Probably not there. I would think in terms of scope, it's going to fall between uh, Riddick and Chronicles, uh, somewhere between Riddick uh, 2 and 3. Well, David, I wish you all the best, and uh, I want to thank you for giving me so much of your time, and uh, hopefully next year, uh, p- pandemic permitting, yeah, exactly. Riddick 4 will be underway. Exactly. Thank you so much, Chris. Indeed, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much indeed, sir. Bye. All right, so that was David Toohey, who... who blah, blah, blah. All right, so that was David Toohey, uh, who was on Sparkling Form. I'm sure you'll agree. And uh, and his film is also on Sparkling Form, guys. I haven't read the script, hey. so I'm just, I'm just segueing. I'm just, yeah, this is extemporizing. This is brilliant. Word association. This is still a cracking movie. The two of you love this movie unreservedly, right? There, there's nothing bad to say about Pitch Black whatsoever. If there is, get it out of the way now. I mean, I don't think I do. Mm. The only thing that kind of blows my mind is this has a Metacritic rating of 40. No. Like, it what? is not, well, no, it's, it's well, 49. It's 49, so it's not as bad. But it's pretty low, and, like, a lot of it's, like, boring, B-movie, derivative. Like, there's a lot of, of 
met an actual full-on hate from critics for this film, which astonishes me because I remember only hearing good things from way back when, when it was released. Yeah. So certainly everyone at Empire really, really liked it. I think partly it was because it was a star-making turn for Vin Diesel. It was like, who is this guy? Because he is the centerpiece of this film and he's magnificent in it. I remember I sp- he did when he did Fast and Furious not too long after this and I, sp- I interviewed him for that and I was very much starstruck because it's Riddick, it's Riddick from Pitch Black. I was very excited by the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's great. It's a really simple premise. So simple and so effective, in fact, that David Tui did it twice for Riddick as well. Exactly the same concept, but with water instead of sunlight. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's great. It's effective. It's really taut. It's, uh, yeah, I, I love everything. I love I love the idea, the very simple concept that it's aliens that only come out at night. There's a whole 30 days a night thing going on mm-hmm. here. And then you get an extended night sequence due to this eclipse. But, but you have an anti-hero who can can see in the dark, which is the genius what a coincidence. <laughs> yes. Thank God he was on board. The setup doesn't bear much close examination, if we're <laughs> perfectly honest. Like, why would these creatures evolve on a planet that is in orbit around two suns? Like, it doesn't make any sense, logically. However, you know, within the, the sort of the premise that they set up, it's, it's fucking great. And I love the fact that they basically pull a, a switcheroo halfway through the film because all we're told in the first bit is that Riddick is the ultimate bad guy. Like, he will kill you as soon as look at you. Shit's about to get real if he gets loose. Like, this is the big bad that we're worried about. And then it turns out he's your best chance to save the day. And also, the guy you thought was the good guy is actually a mm. shit heel. Um, and it's and it's so well done. Just that that crossing over of who you think your hero is, uh, sort of halfway through the film, I think is brilliantly, brilliantly done. Add to that this kind of heroine who's really conflicted and guilt driven and and just completely on edge throughout. And I think it just works super, super well. And, and you knew the heroine was going to be a really good actor as well because she went to Rada. Sorry. <laughs> I should have seen that coming on my radar. <laughs> my, 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 ra- my radar. My ra- mm. Anyway, mm, anyway. So I didn't. I didn't ask. I, I didn't. You're absolutely right, Helen, about the um, the life cycle of these creatures. Uh, I didn't ask David Tui about that because I sensed that he wasn't really one for a lot of backstory mm. in terms of how these things came to be in the planet. Yeah. I'm going to go with they are not indigenous to this planet, that they landed there somehow, oh, wow. or brought there somehow, like the bioweapons, like the aliens are bioweapons, because otherwise... It was an alien ship, it was not from there. Yeah, something like that. So presumably, because otherwise we see this big sort of elephant graveyard type thing, right? Mm. But if they appear every 20 odd years, then how would any life form in the planet have a chance to evolve and grow beyond... <laughs> Well, quite. So maybe, maybe, like, let's be, let's be really charitable here, okay? Maybe this is a star system that did have a gas giant planet and a sun and this world, which was kind of, let's say, an Earth-like world to begin with. And then the gas giant collapsed on itself or whatever. I don't know. Space physicists can fill me in on that. And and now it has two suns. And then these Mm. things, for some reason, already maybe lived underground but couldn't come out that often. So other life was able to evolve. And now it's all about them. Maybe. Did we talk about the the creatures' life cycles at all? Presumably, you didn't get into that kind of detail because oh. apparently the little glowy slug things at the end are the same creature. That's their first form. Like they have three phases. They start in a larval phase where they're bioluminescent. So ironically, they're being scared of their own 
selves right. at the end. Is, and then they become those those adolescent ones, which hunt in packs, and then they become the big ones. It's, it's Patrick Stopoulos was the guy who designed the, the thing, and I think he's talked about it before. Okay. Isn't this a little bit Dune in that case? Where the larvae of the sandworms, um, you know, are basically the only, are the only other life form on the planet Arrakis. Anyway, we may be slightly getting off track here, but, um, mm-hmm. but there is precedent for something like that, isn't there? Interesting enough, in the... Um uh, Tui said in his script he called them predators, but with a small p, um, so as to avoid oh. being sued, I presume, because uh, <laughs> you can't use the big p. He called them predators in the script, uh, but over time, Pitch Black fans have called them bio-raptors. Bio-raptors, uh, which okay. Tui kind of dismissed. That wasn't that wasn't his name. He didn't come up with it. But mm. uh, yeah, it's uh, they're a really interesting creature because it's hard to do creatures. And Patrick Tatopoulos is a really, really talented uh, designer and production designer and uh, an illustrator. And uh, but it's hard to do creatures in this world and not make them look like the alien. And there's a little alien ness to them. You think? Well, they've got big hammerhead type things, and they've mm. got wings, and they've got two legs and like tentacly double bi- bifurcated tails, uh, which is quite fun. I think they they look quite striking. I also like the way they see as well, mm. and I like that the box art for this and the poster art is kind of the the alien vision of Riddick, which is kind of cool too. Yeah, that's clever. Um, I think just generally, like the effects are, you know, for something done on a fairly small budget, mm. the effects are actually really really impressive. This I think was a, an early one for. Uh, was it Deneg at the time? But certainly British effects companies uh, it was one of their kind of early successes. So, as, and they use different uh, lens filters for the different suns. So when the first sun sets and second sun comes, that like, goes from like that yellow filter to a blue filter to give you a sense that you know it's a different time of mm. day. But uh, no, it's, yeah, as you say, like the effects are actually pretty decent given the budget and given when it was made. Uh, it's pretty convincing, and they make good use of. Uh, of, uh, of of Diesel's night vision. I like Diesel's lenses, well, those weirdly sort of pearlescent reflective lenses, which apparently gave him a nightmare making the film. I think they had to call an optometrist in Oof. from like fly someone in from a three hours away because he couldn't get them out of his eye. I think it was on the first oh, day. No. So Oosh. not a lot of fun. He called them hubcaps. <laughs> so not, not a lot of fun for him. Because there were rumours at the time, wasn't it, that this had spun out of Tui's unused Alien 3 idea, wasn't it? Because that was about a space prison. And like the talk of the slam and the prison, apparently this was an idea that spun out of that. But then I'd also read that originally this was a very different film before he got involved. Like it was about a woman, it wasn't about a guy, it was a very, you know, the bare bones of it was similar. But it was, did he talk about that? Yes, uh, Tui's Alien 3 script, we didn't discuss it because I'd already seen an interview with him where he said it bore no relation to this and didn't have any input into this or uh, or effect on this. Instead, this was originally a script by Jim and Ken Wheat. Jim in particular is the director and they both wrote uh, Ewoks, The Battle for Endor. Stonehold. <laughs> yes, another movie about uh, a deadly alien race. So they had this script called Nightfall, which had Basically, some of the same ideas: ship crash lands, uh, but there's no Riddick. Riddick instead is a is a the, the hero of the, the story is a is a woman instead. Uh, so work. thank God they changed that, right, yeah, Helen? Yeah. And, uh, and <laughs> then Tui came on and basically did, as my understanding is, a page one rewrite. Because they were ghosts, not even aliens, in the first. Well, there you go. Ooh. Mm. There you go. John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars. It'll never catch on. And so, yeah, I think as far as I can tell, this is fairly different uh, from what the Wheats had intended, uh, although they still get credit on the on the film. 
But this is very, very much, I think, about about Tui. He's a really good writer and he's really good. You know, I, I've liked a lot of what he's written over the years. I really liked that um, Perfect Getaway movie he did with uh, Steve San and Miliovovich and an early role for a pre-Thor, Chris Hemsworth. And that's a little bit like listening that it's all about shifting loyalties and you're not mm-hmm. quite sure that the person you're rooting for is the person you should be rooting for and there's nice twists and turns. And he's really, really good at that. And he brought a lot of that to this, uh, in particular, the character of Riddick and uh, character of, of Johns and, and Jack. But I think the thing that sets this movie apart, and it's interesting that in early screens of the movie, in early versions of the movie, it was very much more of an even-handed three-hander between Fry and Johns and Riddick. And audiences responded so overwhelmingly, viscerally to Riddick that they went back in and recalibrated the movie and shifted the balance towards him, which I think, you know, that led to Fast Five. So that's a good decision. Well done, everybody. <laughs> Ultimately, you know, that's the butterfly wing that leads to the, the hurricane of Fast Five. Um, and it is ultimately, as much as I think, you know, we, the audience, Fry is the heart of the movie. Riddick is the, the standout. What is it about that character that, that means he's still relevant somehow. They're talking about Riddick <laughs> 4, 20 years on. I think he's relevant here. I, I still am not as convinced by the sequels. Um, although I really wanted to be, both times I really wanted to be convinced. But I think what's so good here is he just, um, first of all, Vin Diesel in the Fast and, Fi- uh, Fast and Furious movies is not sexy. Here he's so super sexy. Like <laughs> Riddick is a very, very attractive man. So really, let's put really, that aside. Ridiculously good-looking. Ridiculously good-looking. Yeah, he is. Um, it's not he's even the turner. looks. It's the voice is absolutely incredible. It is the voice, <gasps> isn't it? That deep, gravelly, bassy yeah. voice. Yeah, it's it's it shouldn't be allowed. Um, Excuse me, does anybody got a bit of a job? <laughs> but. He's also funny yes. as well. Like, there's a lot of humour. It's that, like, that brilliant scene with John's where he's like, how's it look? Looks clear. They nearly get killed. You said it was clear. I said, I said it, it looks looked clear. clear. How does it look now? Looks, looks clear. clear. <laughs> it's just a brilliant exchange. It's really good. And just like all the kind of hard-boiled dialogue as well. I mean, we were saying this morning yeah. on the chat, but, you know, ghost me, motherfucker, it's what I do to you. I just, yeah. like, I'm so here for it and I can't explain why. Um I just think I think it's he's he's really convincing as the baddest bad guy who has ever batted, but he also <laughs> is convincing as the guy who maybe has something underneath that. And I think that's it's that journey that really kind of draws you in and that makes you want to know more about Riddick because you do come to with along with Fry, you do come to doubt what you've been told about him. You do come to wonder if he's all as bad as he seems. And anyway, you're paying attention to him because he just sounds really cool. I'd read some stuff about his backstory. I don't know whether this is canonical or not. And I've played the game Escape from Butcher Bay, and I've seen like Dark Fury and all the various bits around this, but I genuinely can't remember that. He's he's actually a kind of wrongly imprisoned for political reasons. Like he's actually ah. not the mass murdering sociopath. Which actually takes away from the character a little bit. <laughs> oh, that's the red card. Like, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I think you're absolutely right no there. There's no way they had any, uh, any backstory for this character. Completely. Complete. Well, the thing is, the whole point of this film, wasn't it, that he was supposed to, it was supposed to be him, not Fry, that died at the end. And I think they really got under the skin of that character and they realised how people were going to respond to that character. And Tommy had this idea, which he's talked about in the past, where he wanted to make the sci-fi Lord of the Rings. That didn't really happen, did it? But uh, he got Carl obviously they Urban. changed it because of that. 
He did. He got Judy Dench. He got Tandy <laughs> Newton. I mean, the fucking calibre of people in Chronicle of Riddick is extraordinary. But then you have Necromongers and the planet Crematoria. <laughs> yeah, it was a little on the nose, maybe. Just a, just a scooch. <laughs> yeah, and yet a masterpiece compared to Riddick. Hey, well, hey come on uh, now. I, no. I didn't mind Riddick. I did not I mind Riddick at all. I really did. But let's not get back into yeah, that. The gender politics of that are wildly yeah. problematic. But also, the uh, it's just the same idea rehashed. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a rehear yeah, of Pitch it Black. Yeah, but it wasn't as good as Pitch Black, but it was fun. Three stars is Empire Magazine's Chris Hill. <laughs> not as good as Chronicles of Riddick, which could have been a master. Uh, oh, my God. At least Chronicles of Riddick was trying something. You know, I mean, say yeah, what you like for it, and I can say a lot about it. But, like, it was trying something. <laughs> yeah. Um, Furions. And, and, like, again, that retconning comes in because you get the sort of throwaway line here about, you know, basically being born and tossed straight in the garbage. And and then it turns out that, oh, no, it's because he is the chosen one. He's destined to save us all. And uh, maybe not so much. Or maybe. Do you do you buy in this movie that Riddick, do you actually believe that Riddick is creepy serial killer space Hannibal Lecter man? There are those moments early on when he's being uber creepy around Fry with and his, cuts with the her hair. hair off. Yeah. It reminds mm. me of that horrible bit in Riddick where he's picking on yeah. Katie Sackhoff in the shower. Katie Sackhoff yeah. having a shower. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, he, you know, he's, he's not exactly, you know, whiter than white. I don't know. Maybe I went into this movie knowing that he would turn out to be the good guy. I see. I didn't. And I had read the Empire Review and it might even have referenced a twist. I don't remember. So I was kind of maybe on the lookout for something. But Twists. I found him scary at first. I thought he was going to be a compelling villain. I did not think he was going to be a compelling hero. Um, in fact, I remember that issue of Empire had like four or five, four and five star films. Like it was a really, really good month for film whenever this one came out. Mm. So I remember being really hyped and trying to see all of them, which was no mean feat in the jet center in Cool Rain. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was, uh, I, I, I remember being just fixated on him, obviously, because of the aforementioned voice and such, but not trusting him an inch until that kind of midway point switch. Just two years later, three years later, you found yourself working at Empire, where you were working with a bald man who cannot be trusted an inch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all right, though. The voice isn't quite as, uh, quite, doesn't have quite the same effect. That is true. That is true. I'm, I'm not quite on diesel levels Ghost there, me, motherfucker. But, uh... I would do the same to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe, maybe you should do what uh, Howard Hawks used to tell... Um, Lauren Bacall to go outside every morning and scream to lower the pitch of her voice to that kind of gravelly, husky thing that she had. I'm just saying, guys, like it's an option. I could try that. I've been doing it pretty much every day in pandemic lockdown <laughs> yeah. anyway. We talk about Vin Diesel being the breakout star of this film, but we all know that isn't true. And actually the breakout star is quite clearly Farscape's Claudia Black <laughs> as Lord. Shazza, who is Shazza. the centrepiece of this entire endeavour. I think we can all agree. I mean, yeah. can we though? Because she does just die for no reason suddenly quite early on. She was good until that point. I really like her until that point. Yeah, you got it. Oh, Shazza's death. Shazza. Very, very sad. You know, she's ripped in twain by those flying space beasties, and her top half is still screaming as it's carted off into the sunset. You don't get enough Shazza's in space, do you? You don't, do you? Yeah. I love that this thing was shot in Australia, and there's like, there's just filled with loads of Australian supporting yes, eh? actors, yeah. many of whom are keeping their accents. And this maybe, just never maybe explained. it makes sense it. that they would be future miners, you know, and future prospectors. Yeah. She's an interesting because Claudia Black in all of her roles puts on a very almost Englishy type accent. She doesn't Farscape, she doesn't Stargate, she doesn't in all the various uh, video games that she's voiced over like Uncharted. Whereas in this, she's full on Australian. And I am very curious as to whether that is or indeed was her actual mm. accent and that she's adopted this more you know, neutral tones for her, mm. for her, for her professional so. work. But 
Yeah. And interesting, of course, uh, Rada Mitchell is Australian, but uh, mm-hmm. here is putting on an American accent. It's, actors are incredible. They can pretend oh. to be something that they're not. <laughs> they can pretend to be anything, yeah. Except, <laughs> except, let's be honest, for Finn Diesel, who is doing the same voice in every single movie. Uh, can I, has Rightly he ever so. done a different voice? Maybe even Lumet's yes, finally guilty? Groot. Baby Groot, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I am Groot. Yeah, finally uh, guilty. He definitely dialed up the uh, New York boroughs, right? Yeah. I'm not saying he can't play a character, but has he ever done like a proper, hey, a potential kind of voice? Maybe. Like uh, like Strong Connery, he just doesn't need to. I'm uh, just putting it out there. When you have Vin Diesel's voice, you use Vin Diesel's voice. This is true. Do you think he drinks Diesel? Is that how he gets that voice? I mean, wasn't that his bouncer name, isn't it? Because his name was Mark Sinclair, wasn't it? But he his his door name was Diesel when he was a bouncer. <laughs> and so he said, I know, it's, I know, I know. Your name's not down, you're not coming in. <laughs> <laughs> All right, He's really mate. from Yorkshire, is he? All right, yeah, Finn Diesel. <clears throat> Love a bit of it. All right. <clears throat> Tractor Diesel. Yep. What? Tractor Diesel. <laughs> You're attracted to Diesel. Anyway, no, I, don't, right. I don't know what I'm saying anymore. Um, yeah, but I do love a bit of Riddick. But uh, as we mentioned earlier on, you know, this movie is also about Fry and it's also mm. about Johns and it's also about character reversals and pulling a rug out from you at all turns. And Johns certainly is that. Although re- revisited in film, I found that it kind of tipped its hand about his psychosis maybe Earlier than I remembered, in that mm. I don't, I think very early on, you're like, oh, there's something, he's too sweaty. There's something about this guy <laughs> that I'm just not sure I can, I can hitch my wagons to him. <laughs> but, but Fry, who, let's be honest, tries to kill everyone in the first two minutes of the movie, is a really interesting character, I think, as well, to, to kind of get behind. Yeah, because, you know, there there is no mystery. We know uh, exactly what she's done, and we can see the absolutely just cr- skin-calling guilt every time anyone tries to say anything nice to her or <laughs> yes. praise her in any way she's just like oh god don't be nice to me i don't deserve it but and i think that just is is really interesting as a character i mean you know colin farrell's entire career has been playing guilt-stricken characters you can make a living that way and a good one and and i think it's maybe an underexplored area of of film in a weird way you know we have characters driven by father complexes and characters driven by vengeance and i feel like maybe this is the irish catholic in me coming out but i feel like (laughs) characters driven by guilt is a really interesting and relatively underexplored area so i think she's really really good in this so you're saying she's saying to everybody hey find me guilty is that what she's saying to everybody (laughs) yeah i think that's what she's diesel movie that's great it's a diesel movie yep Jimbo, where do you stand in front? So, <laughs> help me, help me save it for myself. Uh, I, I, I like Fry as a character. I think, uh, I, I think that it adds. I think without that element of jettisoning the passenger compartment, uh, I think she'd have felt maybe a little bit flimsy. I think that gives mm. her a little bit more depth and makes her more interesting than she otherwise would have been. But yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It was an interesting choice. I mean, obviously, we, as we talked about already, it was originally Riddick who died at the end. I thought killing her was an interesting choice. That's at interesting. Tui did not say that. Did he no, not? Tui said it was always no. meant to be well, her. Oh, okay. Well, maybe that's not true. Maybe it's just one of those things that is in my brain and actually shouldn't be. But uh, I had read that he was originally, in one of the drafts of the, the script, he died at the end. Mm. But either way, it's interesting to choose to have her live to go back to get Jack and to get the imam and then to die at the last sprint, going back to save 
to save Riddick, I think is a it's a, it's a nice moment and, and an interesting choice. And it's interesting from her character arc point of view because she initially just tries to save herself and the ship and her mm. co-pilot, who's the only other guy awake, and yeah. instead ends up not just saving. You know, Iman and Jack are fine; they're in the ship; they're okay. She goes back for, in theory, the worst person on the ship. Um, yeah. So I think it's a really it, that's a big character arc in terms of just her sense of responsibility yeah and there's a redemption thing there yeah. like when she says she'd die for them and exactly. it's interesting yeah uh, yeah I, I love that. that that sort of those aspects of Hannibal Lecter in space as I said where he's playing psychological <laughs> games with her mm. and John's all the way through and you always get the sense that he's the smartest guy in the room or the planet because they're outdoors <laughs> quite a lot but another thing that intrigued me was the way she dies and I asked Tui if there was ever a graph where she didn't die. He said there wasn't. I uh, said that was always a plan with her, that she had committed, you know, some sort of massive sin and needed to pay the price for it, essentially. But I asked him about her expression on, on her face when Rada Mitchell, when Fry is, you know, speared by the creature and then whisked away. For a second, I almost read a kind of split second of relief in her face. Yeah. Am I wrong in that? He didn't seem to think there was, but I, I, th- I think there is. I can't say I swear any myself. She just looked rather surprised. <laughs> Interesting. I think it would. I mean, it would certainly fit thematically with the with the guilt and the search for redemption. But um, yes, finally, <laughs> what I've always wanted to be speared from behind by a giant alien beastie. Mostly, I just see shock. I guess. Okay. Interesting. Maybe I'm reading too much into it with my giant Protestant guilt. Uh, <laughs> you know, the Protestant guilt that weighs us down all the time. Is that um, a thing? Okay. Is it a thing? I don't know. I don't think it's a thing. Um, yeah, I thought we have a lot to be guilty about. Okay. Maybe I'm the only person who sees that. If you do think that you see in in uh, in Fry an expression of just a fleeting glimpse of, ah, finally, now I'm at peace, uh, or, or thank God this has happened, then do, do please write in. Uh, but what about John's? Cole Hauser, who is mm. terrific in this. And I don't think, apart from being the bad guy in Too Fast, Too Furious, not Which retaining with Finn Diesel, I don't think that he's ever been used as well uh, in this as he, as he was in this. He deserved a bigger career, I think. Yeah, I think he's, I think he's really good in this because I think Johns isn't a straightforward bad guy either. I think, you know, initially when you see him using drugs, you think, well, maybe he's, you know, in pain, maybe he's got an old injury, maybe this awful Riddick guy has caused him some kind of problem. And it, it really takes kind of a, a while before you realise, oh no, he's a he's an absolute junkie. No, actually, that's literally the case. If you in the director's cut, there's an additional scene where oh, really? he explains to her that Riddick literally did try to stab him in the sweet spot in the spine, missed, and he's in chronic pain, and that's why he takes the ah. morphine. Uh, so actually, it is Riddick and in, Riddick inflicted. Damn you, Riddick! But, uh, yeah, <laughs> he's a bad one. Watch out for that Riddick; he'll turn on you. But yeah, so that gives well, in that case, that gives even more context to the kind of personal animosity that he has towards Riddick and his tendency mm. to big up what a scary bad guy this is, um, because of course he would. You know, he's been beaten by him, um, essentially, or at least semi-beaten. So, so yeah, so there is a personal rivalry there that he doesn't like to admit to, and I think it's more about shame and his own sense of inadequacy and guilt again, and and that kind of thing that makes him untrustworthy and makes him dangerous here rather than necessarily having gone super far off the rails from where he started. Does mm. that make sense? Mm. Yes, it does. It really does. Yeah, I think he's really good in this. Um, mm. I think he's, he sketches John's deterioration really, really well. And you also get the sense that, you know, he he's obviously someone who has bested Riddick 
because otherwise Riddick wouldn't be in chains at the beginning of the movie. And so you do that that sort of back and forth between them where they they're both convinced that they can take the other down lends every scene they have just this lovely frisson of tension and it's building the whole film is building towards their final fight and when it comes mm-hmm. it really does deliver i i love their final fight and the way he goes out also yeah i think i don't think he gets the best death in the movie i think that goes to the wine expert actually oh yes mm. with the with the sort of blast of fire but uh, but no, it's a really good one, and I love that. That again, like you say, the the sort of scenes between them, the the recurring bits of dialogue. I want you to remember this moment, how it could have gone and didn't. Mm. You know, this kind of stuff. The personal grooming implement as well. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> not <great>. a shave. <laughs> I said no. I shaves. love that when he's shaving his head with that sort of thing, uh, and like motor grease. <laughs> it's uh, it's quite the moment. It is quite the moment. The film's got a really dark sense of humor. Well, we're talking about deaths. Mm. You know, the fact that Riddick watches. John's basically get his head bitten off and the aliens are tossing it around like it's a football and uh, you know you have the moment of Paris with the with, with the wine that's really fun in a dark Morton kind of way obviously <laughs> Shaz's top half screaming the reveal that of Ali that Ali has been basically stripped of all his skin uh, yeah. by falling into the foreground in a really nice jump scare that's <laughs> a very very dark joke as well also, I like that kind of crash zoom moment where they've just killed the survivor from the uh, from the crash. He's like, I thought it was him. I thought it was Riddick. And then you see Paris there and, it, and then you it zooms out and Riddick is sitting in Paris's chair drinking his wine under the parasol. <laughs> yes. like, it's, like, it's almost like a, it's like a comedy moment. It's really nice. <laughs> Yay, somebody's just been killed, but it's fun for James. It's fun. Yeah, that's the thing. It has a, it has, a, it has a really nice sense of humour of the film. Dark sense of humour, obviously, and we don't condone killing people uh, just because you think they look like Finn Diesel. Um, which he doesn't even, he doesn't even look like Finn Diesel. He's got hair for one thing. Uh, but one of the things I talked to Tui about, uh, which was interesting, is the fact that one of the film's main characters is the great Keith David. Mm. And he plays the imam. And there's mm. this lovely thread runs through the film where many of the characters in this movie are Muslim, which is really interesting. And it does actually place a fair amount of screen time in painting that and uh, depicting mm. that and to paint you know depicting their beliefs as well kills most of them but uh, <laughs> i thought that was quite refreshing for a film made and you know it's mm. 20 years ago but still it's very very hard i can't think of many films of the 90s and early noughties that have muslim characters at all robin hood prince of thieves uh, not mm. a great portrayal i'm not suggesting it's authentic in any way mm. and any more than it is in its portrayal of british geography but um hmm. that's the only one i can think of with a similarly sort of positive muslim mm. figure off the mm. top of my head yeah. um and yeah i think i think keith david is, is great in this i mean you know you said fry is the heart of the movie but arguably he is i mean or certainly he's i don't know another essential organ around the same area i don't know but he's He's really a positive force. He's he's trying to keep his flock, these these young kids, calm. He's trying to you know help out as much as he can. Like he seems like a good person, um, and and he brings in this element of sort of f- faith being tested, and mm. you know Riddick's whole conversation with him about you know sort of where's your god now, uh, kind of a kind of a conversation. I think is. Is a really it's, it works because he is a good person. It works because he has been so steadfast up to that point. I absolutely believe in God, says Riddick, and I absolutely hate the fucker. Which is weirdly enough a line I can't imagine Vin Diesel going within a mile of now. 
Yeah, I think maybe he's more of a family friendly. He's more family focused, <laughs> as we know from every yeah. single Fast and Furious movie. <laughs> so maybe not. Yeah, yeah, especially yeah, especially Dom Toretto, who literally wears the crucifix around his neck for mm. ten films and counting, or nine films and counting, I guess. But that's interesting, and I wonder if you know one of the reasons why this character connects in a way that perhaps he didn't in. In Chronicles of Riddick and Riddick as much is Vin Diesel is a huge star by that point and huge stars tend to want to protect their image to some extent and yes there's obviously an element of Riddick being the good guy the unexpected good guy but he's still the unexpected good guy who will fuck you over he's still the unexpected mm. good guy who will do terrible things whereas I, I don't know if there's that much of that the, the rough edges are sanded off a little bit more, I'd say, in Chronicles of Yeah, Riddick, he loses like. his edge, definitely. Yeah. Like, here he's he's an anti-hero, but very more anti than hero, I think. Like, he's borderline antagonist in this. And by the time you get to Chronicles of Riddick, he's he's straight out, not even so much of an anti-hero, he's just the heroic centre of the film. But then that's a very different beast, isn't it? It feels, it feels like it just, like, they've taken this character and they've tried to crow-hop by him into, like, a different, almost space opera genre. Mm. Like, to put him at the centre of this vast, utterly gonzo mythology with furions and necromongers and carl urban with loads of mascara and it's just <laughs> it doesn't at all work like you, they should have stuck with keeping it simple keeping him who he is in this first film i think trying to give him some messianic destiny was was doomed to failure from the get-go yeah i think i think that's the problem so often with i mean look i'm going to be a broken record here for a second but it's the problem so often with bad guys people who are effective bad guys and i mm. it's a bit more complicated than that here but Sometimes it only works if you do it once. It's the same with, and he is not a bad guy, but it's the same with Han Solo. We don't need his backstory and arguably it mm. suffers from knowing his backstory. Um, it's the same with every single great movie villain who's been given a prequel. It does not help. It almost never helps. Um, and and here it, it doesn't help. It doesn't add anything to, you know, embroider something that works because it's simple, because it's elegant and because it's well done in the first place. Mm. All you're doing is adding curlicues that are just, you know, slowing down the wind resistance or something. I don't know. I've lost my metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that. Yeah. Exactly that. Yeah. Did Tui talk about the character of Jack at all? We talked about it a little bit. What do you what do you make of, of Jack? Yeah, it's it's I, I quite like Jack. I think, okay, again, I'm getting on my hobby horse here, but there's no reason for space to be sexist, right? There's no reason that future set science fiction films should be as sexist as most of them are. And and they're sexist because they're reflecting our society, not because they're reflecting the society in two, three hundred years. And this film, I think, tries to push back on that a little bit in that you have women in kind of quote unquote tough professions like being a pilot, being a miner, being a prospect or whatever else, uh, which is good. But it still makes sense in the universe of Riddick, and especially in the universe of Riddick that we see going forward, that a young girl traveling on her own would pretend mm. to be a boy to avoid unwanted attention, unwanted harassment, and anything else. So within the confines of it being a bad idea to make space sexist, her decision, I think, makes sense. I like I don't think this is a trans mm. character. I think this is a this mm. is a, a girl who is just dressed as a boy. Um yeah, people may disagree with me on that, I don't know. But Well you you get that in Chronicles of Riddick, don't you? Like yeah, she's true. quite clearly, you know, she's Alexa Davalos, so um, so, so I think that, you know, within the fines of, of what we're told, it makes sense. I just kind of wish that science fiction was a bit more progressive because it should be, because it's the future. And I'm not saying that's utopian future. I just think it's 
the natural future. Like for example, and this is another thing of mine, like if you were sending a crew to Mars and you were sending them for a really long period, it would actually make more sense to send women who have lower calorie needs because you could save a fucking fortune on <laughs> loading up your ship. I'm ki I'm not kidding. If it's if it's fifteen hundred calories a day instead of two thousand, you've just, you know, cut your food allowance by a quarter. There you go. There you go. That's a free one, NASA. You're yeah. welcome. And take the extra 500 calories and just give me the Mars bars. Just, just give them straight to me. Just blow it all on hats. That's oh right. Just, yes. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's fight for women's independence. Let's take all this money we've saved and spend it on hats and dresses. <laughs> yes, we've won. We've won. Um, I, it, just, it just made me laugh when you said this is my... Yeah, I've said this before because I, I think you know we all have... Our little things that we repeat from time to time, and just as you were saying that, it made me think about Helena Harris, greatest hits, and then you know, like those adverts on on TV, <laughs> where a lot, on the bottom, you know, there's a list space floozies, space floozies, Joker sucks, Joker sucks, and her new hit single, Dad complexes are, ugh, get in the bin. <laughs> We do not need to live long enough to see the villain become the hero. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, this is a hit album. It's going to sell is. a million copies. What about mine, Ara? What are my what are my hits? What are my hits? Evil Dead Two. Just that. Just Evil Dead Two. Just, yeah. just talking about football. Oh my God! Don't even get me started on football. Oh Lordy, so good. Um, <laughs> just a couple of last things before we wrap this up. One of the things that struck me. I've said this before about uh, this is one of the reasons why I love Alien and Predator is because of the slow build. And going into this film for the first time, it must have surprised me. And revisiting it, it struck me how to he takes his time hmm. with all kinds of revelations. I wrote this down. It's like the creatures don't appear, I think, until 33 minutes in. So you have mm. all that stuff where they're on the planet and they're trying to piece together and it's a mystery of what the model is, the eclipse model, and oh, there were people here before, they were miners or colonizers of some kind, and what happened to them? And we all have our ideas, and then gradually it lays it out. And it's not, I think, until the, the eclipse doesn't come in for 55 minutes. Yeah. So the film called Pitch Black mm. with its hero who could see in the dark and his iconic line, you're not afraid of the dark, are you? isn't said until around halfway through 55 minutes through the film. It's really interesting how it does that. Medito doesn't actually, other than the voiceover, he doesn't speak for the first half hour of the film. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have any dialogue at all, apart from that lovely little... Oh, the voiceover is so good, though. I love the voiceover. It's like, to new mechanics, like, but what, what route? route? What route? <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Yeah, so good. Yes, we can both recite it, all right? <laughs> yes, you can. Yes, you can. I love the idea of that as well, the way you get that sense when he talks about New Mecca and you get the sense mm. that humanity is kind of spread out among the stars. And yet then it's like, I was supposed to die in Paris, you know, and it, it kind of goes... And the fact that they're, they're going like a bottle of Jack Daniels is what they're filling the little thing up with with larvae. But um, yeah, I, I, I gives a, it gives a hint at what the world would be. Um, I really like speaking of you know space and the world and whatnot. I really love the space sequences in this. I, I thought mm. the crash was a really really great sequence, and I think that's the score for this film. Who's the composer for this film? I don't know off the top of my head, uh, but the score is great. That main theme song is written not song. That main theme <laughs> piece of music is not a song at all. It's a piece of music. Let me do that again. It's so, black. Like, the, the main theme like for this film is really really sort of like stirring. It's a great piece of music. Graham Revel. 
Yeah. Or Grim. Reveled in it. Yeah. Hey, there we go. There we go, folks. Uh, There's lots of stuff I really admire about this. I think some of the effects haven't stood the test of time, but it's totally fine because it was was a fairly low-budget movie and Mm. um, using fairly... You know, nascent technology and with D-neck. a terrible tagline as well. Fight Whoa. evil with evil. Oh, that's terrible. Dreadful. Not that's good. shocking. That belongs in <laughs> Alien vs. Predator Requiem or, or something like that. Oh, no. No, thank you. No, thank no. you. Um, no, no, no. Anything else you want to say about this movie? Any standout sequences? Any standout <sighs> lines that you want to talk about? I love I love the moment where they they cross over their own tracks, their own sled tracks in the sand, and they all get really really angry at Vin Diesel for leading them astray, and and then he explains, no, that's the that's the killing ground up ahead. Yeah. I've been trying to you know think of another way. Past. A sucker wants to give some time to think. That's a nice oh, moment. It's, it's yeah, it's really chilling. When John suggests that they f- essentially feed Jack, really cold-blooded feed Jack to the space bastards, and uh, and he's like, oh, we'll like we'll tie her to the sled and drag her like a hundred yards behind, and he's just like, I don't want to throw them on the scent. I don't want to feed them. It's just it's so nasty. And it's just the line when he goes, "Battlefield doctors decide who lives and dies." It's called triage. And Riddick's comeback is, "They kept calling it murder, murder when I did and I it." Did it. <laughs> 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 and when Riddick kills that, when he when he takes out one of those things, like absolutely destroys it with his ship, and he's like, did not know who he, who he was who fucking, was fucking with. with. It's just like, <laughs> come on. That's slightly just- misplaced confidence, isn't it? Given that there's like a million of them. <laughs> But also, like the the bit where he gets the skull of one of them and sort of figures out that they have the blind spot, and then just yeah. dances in that that beautiful sort of face to face bit with them. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, yeah. I didn't I didn't buy the physics of that at all. But I just go with it. Here's a here's a vision related thing for you. Did you know that Ridox syndrome is actually a uh, a visual impairment where your vision is 100 percent based on movement. You can't see static objects. So all of the t wow. the T Rexes have Ridox syndrome. Well, except they don't. Of course, we've established that in the sequels. But wow, that's really cool. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah. The Chronicles of Ridox. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, at least we amuse ourselves, and that's important. It almost thing. makes yeah. me want to watch the Chronicles of Riddock again, but I won't. <laughs> I do. I watched it twice in the cinema when it came out. I really liked it, or I was trying to make myself like it. It yeah, was one I or think, the other. I can't remember which. I think I know which. Yeah. Yeah. We're not. We're not. We're not rushing to do a spoiler special she, for the Chronicles of Riddock. She's a space ghost. She's a space angel. Space ghost. Ah, whatever. I know she flits above a, a like a hole in the in the ship. Which I, is loads of fun. I have to say, I do feel it's a bit of a shame that the Chronicles of Riddick crashed and burned as spectacularly mm. as it did, because this is a character I would really have liked to see more of. We're now twenty years on from Pitch Black, as we've established. I feel really old, and only now are they getting going properly on Riddick Four, which Tui talked about more extensively than I expected him to. I have to say, you know, I'm I'm excited about seeing more of this character if they can recapture what made mm-hmm. him so exciting in this mm-hmm. iteration. But the fact that Chronicles of Riddick also was something it was bold and it was original. It just was also nonsensical and rubbish. Mm. And <laughs> that was a big problem. And, it, you know, they got fucked by the studio. There's no question about that on Chronicles of Riddick. They got fucked by the studio in a way that they totally did not on here because they were on the other side of the world mm. with no stars <laughs> and a no minuscule budget and no one cared. And yeah. then eventually, oh, it's like, oh, actually, you've, you've made a sort of low-key classic here. Mm-hmm. Had that happened, <laughs> if we'd known that, we would have put a stop to it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. This this one's great, but then I I obviously we disagree on this, but I am very much uh, 
not on the same page with Riddick, with the third film, because again, they went low budget, they went low star wattage uh, on that one and, uh, and presumably had less interference as a result. But I just want a little bit more forward thinking and I guess in the storytelling than that one had. And I'd like to see a, a return to the cleverness really of the first film, yeah. which I just didn't think was there in Riddick. Listen, I'm not prepared to die on the hill that, you know, Riddick is a great film. I'm not saying that at all. I gave it three stars. I've seen it once. I enjoyed it. It has problems. <laughs> I discussed those problems in my review, but I can't remember a lot else about it other than Riddick's a bit creepy. And, uh, you know, mm. it, it basically does the same moves as Pitch Black, but only not quite as well. Yeah. But I still enjoyed it and I'd still like to see more of him. And we're 20 years on from Pitch Black and we've only seen this character two more times. And that seems to me to be a shame when we've seen Dom Toretto 435,000 times <laughs> in the same time period. That's fair. I, I feel a bit like this was a film that didn't need a sequel. like Because this character works in this situation. And the second, as we discussed, the second you make him the hero, you lose what makes that character great because traditional movie making doesn't allow for that kind of character to be the central hero and still be a murdering sociopath. It just doesn't happen. So you end up losing its head. You end up defanging him. And it's like, well, at that point, what's the point? Just have another character. Mm. I think, you know, the, this was a film that works very well on its own. It's inventive. It's ingenious. It's incredibly well executed. And it is the film that brought Vin Diesel to the masses and we should always be thankful for it for that but yeah I, I in my head it's a bit like Highlander like there's one pitch black film for me that's, that's it <laughs> oh, they never made another Highlander no that's well, fine well exactly Helen exactly I mean there were those TV shows they were okay but sure, there was no sure, no other sure. Highlander film <laughs> no but they made loads of Highlander guys no, I, I saw no, them no I, I don't think so no no that's just one of those urban legends like the fourth Indiana Jones film I have a, a weird, weird soft spot for Highlander 3, The Sorcerer, and I don't know why. No. The one with Mario Van Peebles as a why? wizard. <laughs> yes, I, I've seen that one as well. It's extraordinary. Maybe we should spoil Highlander. Yeah, we really should. Oh, I mean, they've no. already done that, Helen, but we could certainly uh, hey. give it a go. Well, you know, hey-ho, I hope that they get funding for Furia which is mm -hmm. what it's going to be called. And I hope it comes out the same year as Furiosa. Oh, yeah. oh God. <laughs> Can you imagine? And Shazam, Fury of the Gods. And Nick Fury's final standalone movie, <laughs> at last. Yes, and the reissue of David Ayer's Fury. <laughs> Once those five movies all come out, then finally we can die in France. Right, that is it for our Pitch Black spoiler special. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, and again, I have to say thank you so much for subscribing to the spoiler specials. It really does mean a lot to us. And uh, we are going to be bringing more spoiler specials your way through the month of September. There's going to be all sorts of stuff. Uh, there's going to be spoiler specials for Bill and Ted Face the Music, hopefully with the creators of Bill and Ted. Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon and the film's director, Dean Pariseau. There's going to be a Tenet spoiler special, which Team Empire gets thoroughly confused by the plot of Christopher Nolan's Tenet and tons and tons and tons of other stuff as well over September and the coming months also. And the regular podcast is out every single Friday. So do like, listen and subscribe if you don't already. And if you do already, well, then thank you very much for that as well. But anyway... Until we meet again, until then, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from ridiculous himself, James Dyer. How much do you weigh, Chris? <laughs> it's a bit personal, my God. <laughs> yes, <laughs> what's going on there? Oh no, I want you to remember this moment. It is goodbye from Nick Furian, Helen O'Hara. <laughs> I mean, Toodaloo seems wrong somehow in this film, but... You know, too late. It does, doesn't it? <laughs>
toodaloo, toodaloo. And it's goodbye from me, the Banbridge Chronicles of Riddick. Shout out to my former newspaper and my hometown in Northern Ireland. Uh, I'm off to die in France. I never even saw France. Actually, it's not true. I have. You've been there lots. Yeah, you're a Disney mainly, but still very pretty. <laughs> Thoroughly recommend. Eight out of ten. Eight out of ten for France. <laughs> what the <laughs> France? Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Au revoir.